Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for coming. Can you hear me okay in the back? Splendid, thank you. Over the course of these six lectures, I am attempting to examine six different textual artifacts, each of which is resistant to traditional bibliographical method, but each of which is resistant in a different way. Accordingly, I'm trying to evolve various sets of protocols that would help me to attend to the object in all its historical pluriformity, in the ways that its materialities contribute to the making of culturally instantiated meaning. It seems to me that for too long, bibliography has come to the textual object with rule book in hand, whether that rule book was written by Mr. McCarrow or Mr. Bowers or any number of others. And it seems to me, instead of coming with the rule book in hand and saying, well, we must prescind from this and that because it's not in the book, we should instead look at the textual artifact itself and attend to it with humility and say, what questions does this artifact demand that we answer? How can we begin to think about the object in history? I submit to you that the overweening question of bibliographical study is not and never really has been what is the perfect text of Shakespeare. Rather, I think that the true question of bibliographic study is the question, how did this book, it's a shorthand for any textual artifact, how did this book come to be the way it is? How did this book come to be as it is? And then the business of textual criticism, important, vital to the study of the humanities as it is, is one subcategory of that larger question. I think that for too long, bibliography has sought to find explanations rather than cultivating broad understanding. There is a penchant, as it were, for measuring and counting without asking the larger questions. The aim of these lectures is to strive imperfectly, stumblingly, to ask those larger questions, always looking through the lenses of evidence, inference, argument, and omission. So that's always kind of the background to what we're trying to do, is to think about the canons of evidential argument, to think about the relationships between evidence and inference, to think about the way bibliographical arguments are marshaled, and then to ask ourselves questions about omission. Bibliography is about the study of objects. 
historically produced objects and objects, therefore, in history. A famous bibliographer once opined that it was the glory of bibliography to discover the human presences in every recorded text. That bibliographer was Donald Francis Mackenzie, who was professor of bibliography at this university. How would we find the human presences in an 18th century newspaper, evoked continually as a kind of emblem of sociability, invoked often as saying every newspaper was read by six or 10 or 20 individuals, that it was a conduit for the world of print culture to those who were not literate because it was read aloud as people attended to the day's news. We won't be dealing with any of that today. <laughs> it seems to me that discussions about the 18th century newspaper often center on the avidity of the audience for print to know the latest newses and to say, hey ho, what's news? Not on the Rialto, Professor Ern. So, so the question becomes, can we get beyond the avidity of consumption trope, which is so pervasive, and come to a bibliographical understanding of a newspaper, what it is, and how it makes its meaning. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to focus today on one London newspaper, the General Evening Post. It's a fairly ordinary, three times a week newspaper, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. There were many evening newspapers, and the, London, the general evening post competed against, at any one given time, between three and six other evening papers, to say nothing of a number of morning papers and a number of weekly papers as well. When we think about a newspaper, we need to think about repetition and difference. We need to think about questions of seriality, about identity. I take the GEP, some of its readers surely must have said. And the newspaper is a familiar pattern that the, the printer does not deviate from because the mise en page is part of the branding. This seems to me also important. The look is the same and the same and the same. If we were to investigate the General Evening Post bibliographically and think about the object and how it came to be as it is, we could think about the ways that paper sizes change over the course of the century. Here you can see quite vividly we could think about the transit of all London papers from three-column to four-column format as that paper size increases to get more newses on the page. We could, we could look at the changing prices of newspapers, a very useful thing to do. We could index those prices against 
other consumer prices and wages as, as others have done, an important act of social history, clearly. We could pay great attention to the Stamp Acts, something an American by instinct might well do, starting in 1712, and thinking about the incremental increases in the Stamp Act, and we should rejoice in the fact that because of the stamping of, of printed papers as a source of government revenue, mostly to fund wars, alas, not schools, um, we have great data about newspaper production, certainly in terms of numbers not wholly complete. We should also bear in mind, however, that with the Stamped Acts, Stamp Acts, there was concomitantly a tax on advertisements. And this is important to understand too. There's no physical trace of, this, of the tax, but it's, it's also very important, it seems to me, to think about the newspaper as an economic object. So when it comes right down to it, having thought about all those things and, and, and sort of sliced it one way and then another, in the end, bibliographically, we can say quite little. We can say that a newspaper is a single sheet. It becomes a bifolium with four pages. There is an outer form, and yes, there is an inner form. <coughs> we can say that, unusually in some cases, the, the advertisements in one quadrant of the outer form are for the most part left in standing type. So there is a lot of repetition with difference in an 18th century newspaper. And we can say that, generally speaking, the standard features and columns appear mostly in the same places over and over again. This part would be newly set, with some of it left standing. This part would be, for the most part, old. In this case, the outer form would always be printed last because it would contain the latest news. The inner form would be printed first because this is just a rehash of what's in all the other papers. It's an evening paper thrice weekly, and so it has in it lots of digesting and stealing from the morning papers, of course. And once we've said all that, the bifolium, inner form, outer form, a lot of standing type, but the crucial bit of type said at the last minute to get as much news in as possible. Once we've said that, we have, for the most part, exhausted what the physical artifact will tell us. Mr. Bowers, if you can hear me now, what are we to do? Well, 
it is the case that Stanley Morrison, in his quite brilliant Saunders lectures at Cambridge, looked at the development of the newspaper over a long period of time, examining changing factotums, mastheads, and so on, looking at the evolving appearance of the newspaper. This was splendid work. But it also is the case that despite Stanley Morrison's clarion call for people to read newspapers bibliographically, there is very little scholarship in this regard. I think because of the difficulty of, of, of not being able to say much about the multiple produced in, say, 5,000 copies, which ends up existing in a singleton, if at all. So even with something like the Gazette, which we know had its crucial part double set, so two crews could work the press and save time, such were the numbers. It's also the case that it had a very, very lucrative government subvention. It is the case that even when we know that there was double setting taking place of the outer form, there are so few examples extant for us to be able to collate those outer forms to see if there are any significant textual differences. Hinman Collator fails us in this regard. What are we to do? We can't resort to many of our old tools. It is the case that others before me have sought business records, despite traditional bibliography relegating these business records as, as not as reliable as the object themselves. Hmm, evidence and inference. Interesting. Can we know things about the Grub Street Journal by reading the minute book of the partners in the Grub Street Journal that we could never know from the physical object? Certainly. QED. No argument there. It's been done. There also exists the minute book of the partners of the St. James's Chronicle. Very interesting publication because so many of the partners weren't only booksellers, but many were involved in the London theater. Coleman, for example, and a man named Garrick. And, and of course, just as the booksellers had an interest in owning papers and participating in the world in, of print, partly because if they were partners in a publication, they didn't have to pay for the ads, they only had to pay the duty. So too, those who were involved in the operation of theatrical companies had a, had a strong interest in, in advertising, and therefore, this makes all sorts of sense. However, as the example I have, I've given you the most exciting, I've read about 1,200 pages of this on microfilm, and, and I'm going to give you the most exciting page. A mistake was discovered, and, and so we, we made a 10 shilling adjustment. You're done. <laughs> because this is, is stolid stuff. It's just the accounting over and over and over again. There is very little editorial content in, in this document, which is now at the, at the Wilson Library at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. I'm sorry to say, I had high expectations. 
It is the case, however, that there exists in a very small, little-known library in Farmington, Connecticut, the Lewis Walpole Library, a gift, a lovely gift, a lovely gift from Tim Mumby to Lefty Lewis for favors received for great kindness given during the course of the war. This is the minute book of the partners in the General Evening Post that runs from 1754 to 1786. And this, though it's been very little studied, is, I submit to you, the richest document that we have for the study of newspaper history in the 18th century. It's a business document, but it has fascinating content, it seems to me. It's my privilege to share some of that with you today. So we can use this document in a variety of ways. We can, for instance, use it to know something we could never know by looking at the physical artifact, which is how many were printed? What are the press runs? That, it seems to me, is rather useful indeed to know about the penetration of the newspaper. We can do the normal accounting business and this is also important because the pounds, shillings, and pence are, after all, ultimately why the partners in the General Evening Post and in the St. James's Chronicle and in the Grub Street Journal and every other serial, why they're in the business. It's a for-profit business. So important to always follow the money. But it's also the case that we can see the partners trying to come to grips with new technology, new possibilities for the delivery of their paper. And we can see how they deal with the ever-present threat of a suit by the government for libel. You know, until Fox's 1792 Libel Act, it is the case that the government brought out the threat of libel all the time in order to tame the press. And uh, one of the reasons I submit to you for having a group of partners who have a good capital asset each to himself is to defend the press against the threat of litigation. It's also to distribute capital risk, of course. So I'm quite interested in following the prices and the distribution of, of paper, how we understand how a newspaper got its paper. This seems to me I know it's slightly nerdy, but I am a bibliographer. It is the case that it's important to know how the paper came in, what the partners paid for it, and how reliable their supply was. So here you see they have a problem. The supplier is leaving off business. He's no longer going to be a stationer. So they bring in somebody new, and Mr. Curtis prepares a specimen and um, they seem to be okay. But then 
other newspapers, there's a lot of competition. It's a saturated market. Everybody wants in. This is a lucrative business. I don't think we can understand the object in history unless we understand a newspaper as a perishable commodity and as a commodity competing against other print commodities. And so it seems to me here that they say, how can we forestall the competition? We're going to have to up our game too. And so they say, let's, let's, let's invest. Let's invest considerably here. And um, let's make sure we have the overplus sheets for the proofs because this is extremely important. This becomes a deal breaker later on with another supplier who won't supply the overplus sheets for the proofs. But eight months later, they have to go back and say, hey, we've got this specimen on file and we've got our paper now as it's coming into the printer and you're cheating us. So, so what are we going to do? They have to constantly be doing quality control. It's also the case that we can use this very rich document to understand the flow of paper through the printing office because as we keep track of the numbers, we can understand how many sheets per week, and that can tell us a lot about the press work, that can tell us about the paper flow, that could tell us, give us pretty good estimates about the, the, the compositor's wages, not only, which we could have anyway, but the pressman's wages, and this can allow us to calculate some, some nitty-gritty costs from some fairly reliable assumptions, it seems to me. It's also the case that um, credit terms in the 18th century are frequently between six months and a year. Hard to believe, but that's true. So when, when the proprietors of the General Evening Post want to save money because they're reasonably capitalized, they supply for ready money at a discount. This is particularly important for the paper supply. It is the case, too, that because the competition is fierce, we get a glimpse now and again about the reaction of the partners to new entrants into the market. This one seems to me to be quite ominous. Well, the London Chronicle is doing very well. I have an idea to stop its progress. Unfortunately, whatever they came up with, they wouldn't minute it. I don't know what the scheme was. And I've looked in the newspapers themselves of the time to try to find out, and so far, far not discovered anything. Did they go to their paper supplier and say, you need to make sure that this chap is undersupplied? Did they go to the post office and say, we've been with you a long time, you need to be a little late? How did they undermine the roaring success of the Chronicle? Not clear to me, but clearly they perceived a threat. We also see in these pages 
attempts at political bribery. So, so here we have Pitt the Younger and Fox both after that, that, that incredibly contentious 84 election, um, both trying to buy as many papers as they could in the Walpolean tradition, of course. And, and so, and, and so uh, the factor for the GEP calls an emergency meeting of the proprietors and says, what should I do? I, I, I kind of held them off because they both want to buy our influence. And interestingly enough, we can read in this page and in subsequent ones, they say, no, we will keep our independence. And they strive not to uh, annoy either party by doing that, say, but we would always welcome intelligences from either side. It, it is the case that um, the key to particularly a thrice weekly paper, an evening paper, was the post office. Because there were six clerks of the roads. And the six clerks of the roads, who among them had 17 assistants, and they had the franking privilege. They could send newspapers through the post for free. They were going to charge the newspaper for it, and that's how they made their money. It becomes further complicated when middlemen intervene and so on and so forth, and we, we needn't deal with all that. But the clerks of the post office, who are particularly those six clerks of the road, are so important that they often are brought in as partners for these publications without having to pay the capital investment. Because they are going to make a different kind of investment into the paper, an investment of their influence in office. So um, here we see a, a, another way that the newspaper as an organization tries to marshal its influence. They're having trouble with debt collection. And what do they do? They go to the gentlemen in the post office who are working with a rival newspaper. And they say, let's get this agent to pony up here. Let's cut him off, both. And then he won't have any income. So let's, let's figure out a way to join forces. These people are very sophisticated businessmen. They know how to use their muscle. They know how to go gently. They know how to be very subservient to the government when the attorney general is uh, knocking on their door. But they also, they also know um, how, how to get the job done. It is the case that when we think of the General Evening Post and it's produced in London, we <coughs> mostly think perhaps that it has a London readership. Not so. Those evening papers are for the country. And the idea is that they'll take the intelligences from the morning papers and they will digest whatever else has come in and they will give the latest news which would be sent overnight through the post to the provinces. This seems to me particularly important to understand. We cannot begin to comprehend 
the general evening post unless we understand that its success and failure hinges virtually entirely on this postscript. This is the last thing set. This is what they hold the page for. The front page in that outer form, it's all set. Most of this page, or as much as possible, is set. They're going to wait as long as they can for the copy for the postscript because the reputation of the paper depends upon the relevance and newness of the news in that postscript. And as we'll see, the partners invest most heavily in this than anything else. So it is the case that um, we can know through stamps that um, about a million papers uh, go through the post in the early 60s, and by the time we get to the early 90s, 2.5 million. So there's a kind of news explosion, a kind of print explosion, a literacy efflorescence, of course, and a metropolitan population explosion as well um, at the same time. So if we think about infrastructure, and I don't see how we cannot think about infrastructure if we're thinking about the distribution of print, we see here in the most basic shorthand, um, in 1740, this is the turnpike uh, roads uh, of, of, of uh, England and Scotland and Wales, not very much. And, and just 30 years later, quite impressive. And, 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 and 20 years later, still, still more robust. This is crucial to understanding how the paper is a viable financial concern. It's also the case that, uh, as Christine Ferdinand will know very well, that the distribution of papers is very much tied to roads. If you live near a road, you're likely to get the paper. If you're too far away, it becomes more cumbersome, more expensive, and less timely. So, so again, a, a contemporary in 59 is saying, yes, these people take the evening posts. It doesn't mention any of the London papers at all, even though it's not very far away. So, so to me, um, people, people will look at this and say, aha, yes, this is, this is all about the avidity for news. I think this is all about who's delivering the news for me. The country network for the distribution of the newspaper and how that works. So, so here we see an example of a frank uh, all the way for Scotland by one of the, the Clarks of the Road. And here we see an, another, another uh, Clark advertising all the different papers that he is willing to distribute, including, of course, at the top of the list for the Thrice Weeklies, the GEP. So it is the case that um, the timing of the paper is extremely important because you want to hold that postscript till you get the latest intelligences. You need to hold it to distinguish it from that morning London paper. 
But it's also the case that if you hold it too long, the clerks of the post office become furious because they have to hold the mails. The last minuteness of this is so extensive that I have been able to discover complaints written to the post office, written by postal patrons who say, my mail was carried, they say my post was carried, my post was carried with newly printed newspapers. And the wet newspapers have offset all over my post. <laughs> Because, because, of course, the paper was damp and the ink took a long time to dry. They can't wait. They cannot wait. They're printing right up until the very last minute. But it's also the case that why would you need papers a half hour after 4 o'clock when the post office doesn't close for the clerks of the roads till midnight? Because there is a, a local market. And that local market needs timely distribution before they go home from work. So, so it's both and. It's not, it's not either or. So if we want to understand the General Evening Post, or I submit to you just about any other newspaper, we need to understand this triangle. For every set of proprietors, they can make it timely and they can have very high quality. They can pay a lot of money for the news and they can double set that outer form. But it's going to cost them a lot of money and competition is great. They can make it cheap and fast, but then it's no good. They can make it really good and cheap, but they have no time to do so because they're always under a deadline. If we don't understand this, we don't understand the constraints and the possibilities of an 18th century newspaper. This, it seems to me, and the compromises that are affected over and over again the key to understanding what decisions they make and why. So, so it, is, it is the case that um, that investment in the postscript is crucial and a lot of this minute book of the partners is people getting fired for not doing what they need to do. They get paid a lot of money to furnish the intelligences for the postscript and when they can't do it, they say everybody needs to support the credit of the postscript. It's also the case that the complaints from the clerks of the post office are legion. The biggest problem that the partners of the General Evening Post deal with over the course of many, many years is the question of timeliness. They're constantly trying to save money, and, um, and, and the clerks of the post office say, we'll tell people not to take your paper if you keep doing this to us. 
and all the power is on their side, which is why you want to bring them in as best you can. Um, so here they're very late, and what do they do? They say, oh, well, you know, let's go and explain why we were late on this occasion. They need to court the post office. It's also the case that they consider the double setting of the outer form again and again and again because that might be the way they add a larger press crew and they're working at maximum rate and they can't get it in on time because they need the postscript to have the latest news so what do they do they say well we could double set we could have two presses two crews not quite twice as fast but almost twice as fast let's let's do that let's do that and they they go to they they estimate over and over and over again the expense of double composing and every time they say oh my goodness we can't afford to do it let's not do it let's keep let's keep hedging our bets and let's keep courting the post office we've got to get them in before 11 o'clock every night but it's going to cost us a guinea every night and that's too much money it's going to vitiate our margin and we don't want to do this we're in it for the money so so we can see the working here of the partners and the sort of carefully calibrated economic decisions that they're making but they're also trying to make sure they have enough papers in a sufficiently timely way for domestic consumption. And so those first papers that are going to press are being taken away as early as 4.30 in the afternoon, not 11 o'clock at night. But if your press run is 5,000, it's not hard to do the math, right? So you take the first ones away and make sure that they're for the London distribution. But then you still have to make the post office deadline or you're going to have real problems. So it is the case that these complaints are iterated and reiterated over time in ad nauseum, really. Um, and so they, they keep doing this and doing this. And finally, every once in a while, they just get desperate and they buy them off. They buy them off at a very, at a significantly large sum, it seems to me, because, because they have to find a way to placate them. They say, okay, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, but here we go. <laughs> here, how about this? Will that help? And a little geld always seems to mend the way, mirabile dictu. So, so it is the case that um, finally they say, well, look, we're just, you know, there's not much in it anyway. Let's just set the entire inner form the day before. So that when the pressmen come to work, they will have set the whole thing and dampen the paper and go home. And when they come in the next day, they can begin to print the inner form. And then when that outer form is finally locked up, they can perfect the sheets and begin to move things out fast. And that's the solution they come up with, but the people who are supplying news hate this. Because if it's news that's not going to go in the postscript, it's going to go in the inner form. And if it's going to go in the inner form, they have to have their news a day early. And then they say, well, you're paying me to do this, but how can I get you good news 
a whole day early. And so again, they're competing with this idea of timeliness and quality and economy over and over and over again. It is the case that um, sometimes things are more interesting or spicier than just the ordinary running of business. Um, the affair of Charles Say is a good case in point. Charles Say was one of the most important newspaper printers of his day. He was the son of Edward Say, who himself was probably the one of the two or three regnant newspaper printers in London. He learned the trade at his papa's feet, and he was printing the general evening post for the partners. He was also, with their knowledge, printing the Craftsman, and he was printing the Gazette, a daily. The partners knew this, but he assured them that he had sufficient staffing and could make it all work. Eventually, serious problems arose. And the first inkling, as it were, is this notice right above the postscript. In March of 1771, oh, the paper will just be the way it always is. Honest, Gov. But it'll just be a different publisher. Huh. So then, in a different paper, in the Gazette, which he has been formally associated with, Say says, well, look, there's a, the General Evening Post is just the same, but there's a different publisher, and everybody ought to know about it. And he'll repeat that. Then the General Evening Post says, hey, nowhere else. They move their imprint from the bottom <laughs> all the way to the top, from the bottom of the back page to the top right under the masthead, and they say, look, this is the General Evening Post. It's published as it always has been by our people and nowhere else. No mention of a pirate General Evening Post, but sure, there is one out there. And they don't acknowledge the fact that Charles Say is printing a rogue paper which is pretending to be the General Evening Post, they won't acknowledge it. Time passes. And what do they do? Say says, hey, look, I am printing the real, I'm Spartacus. No, I'm Spartacus. He <laughs> says, I'm printing the real one. And you know it's the real one because my father, my father was the printer of this paper. And I'm doing what my daddy did. So who are you going to side with? These businessmen? Or me, the printer, who learned how to print this paper from his dad? Huh. Okay. So, so then the General Evening Post has to say, all right, we've got a problem. And there is a spurious paper out there. 
and they delineate in some detail what the problems are. They do so in the beginning, right on the front page, and then they repeat it several times where? In their precious postscript. This is going to sell newspapers, but it's also taking up valuable space. They address the public, and they say, so much reward. We did everything we could for this boy, but we got the most ungrateful returns. He did nothing. And so, so when, he, when he started to put these, these advertisements out, they were nugatory. This man has no authorization from us. He has traduced the Articles of Partnership. And where would England be if this were the case? So they continue the attack on say over and over again and they say these infamous proceedings will not pass with impunity. The proprietors will come after him with all that we have. There is war. And they repeat it over and over again. There exists no copy of Charles Say's pirate publication. Again, I call upon the Baker Street Irregulars. If you can, please to find one, because I cannot find it, but I know it exists. I know it exists. And I also know that on July 4th of 1777, there appears the most curious Denouncement of Charles Say and announcement that he's been reinstated as the printer and to partnership in the General Evening Post. There is a document in the British Library which indicates the terms under which the two parties were reconciled. The mystery remains, however. What did Charles say have on the partners that enabled him to bargain his way back? I have spent time in the PRO. I've spent time in the BL. Everywhere I could think of, I cannot discern what the answer to this conundrum might possibly be. But there it is. Charles Say produces the General Evening Post until he dies, and then his wife Mary Say, a figure who deserves far more attention in history, takes over from him, as was often the case. And she successfully prints the paper for a very long time. <coughs> the minute book, unfortunately, is completely silent from March 1771 to July 11, 1771, when this very terse resolution that Mr. Say is desired to print the paper on the letter he proposes until further orders. That's it. That's all we know. But what we do know from the indictment in the paper itself is that on March the 7th, this very day, although it is not noted here, 
Say was dismissed as the printer. But obviously he had gotten to his men in the printing office, was able to print the rogue advertisements, was able to use his contacts in other London newspapers, and to hatch the scheme of a pirated newspaper. I know of four instances, this being one, during which this happens in the 18th century. And this is the most thoroughly documented one we have. So it is the case that we can see here trouble brewing as early as 69. Um, Mr. Say became printer of the paper and he took off John Murray's name without asking us. Why did he do that? The General Evening Post has been terribly printed. What's going on? The committee will observe in February of 1771, just two weeks before he's dismissed, almost three, that, that the paper is terrible. It's hardly legible. It's badly worked off. We indict our employee. He fails his annual review. So we know now what precipitates this but we don't know, we don't have the benefit of having the physical artifact that say produced as a pirated version. What inferences can we draw from the absent evidence of the paper not existing? Almost certainly this, that say was badly undercapitalized, that his press runs were very small, and that he, what he was doing was as much for show and defiance as for economic gain. It is the case that he was able to co-opt many members of the print trades, however, against the wealthy bookselling owners. This is a telling episode that perhaps needs to be explored further. Here is one of the uh, evidences of another piracy. In this case, there were two morning posts, and here the proprietors go after the pirate immediately, um, just a few days, and I love this, these lawless banditi, and, and so on. So we, we can understand the conduct of this fight, again, by following it in the papers themselves. There is no attendant business record to Illumina. It is the question, uh, it is the case that as you will notice, um, perforce, much of the research for this lecture, unlike the pre three previous lectures, has had to be conducted digitally. The Bernie newspapers in the British Library, and not uniquely, have been fully digitized and are not available for consultation as a means of preserving the fragile artifacts. One might ask preserving them for what, and yet at the same time I do understand the problem. They were read to bits in the BL when it was the British Museum. But it seems to me that if we're in the business 
of asking how did this book come to be the way it is, and we are forced to conduct the majority of our researches digitally at a distance, at an epistemological and physical distance, both from the printed artifact, then we must ask this question, how did this artifact come to be the way it is, not only of the physical copy of the General Evening Post, but also of the digital artifact, which is both the object and, as it were, the means of our interrogation. In this case, bibliographical literacy and digital literacy are inextricably linked. To know a lot about bibliography and to be naive about how the digital artifact came to be the way it is, is it seems to me to do research blindly. It is to use a tool without understanding its limitations, without being able to calibrate something of its reliability as an investigative tool. And so when we look at this newspaper up on the screen, seems that we have exactly what was produced by the human hand. It seems perfect. It seems very attractive and infinitely accessible. There is a book or a pair of books in the Bodleian <laughs> Library and, and, and that book is, is the Constitutions from Year Three in the French Revolution. Splendid tome. You can see the beautiful velvet cover. You might even notice that once upon a time there were clasps. It is the case that its, its uh, companion volume is The Rights of Man. And if you open to the final leaf of the rights of man, you will see this, this rather lovely manuscript in which the Constitution is copied out. This is a lovely book. And the French Revolution is a very important moment in history. And thank goodness the Bodleian Library is chronicling it with these documentary records. Of course, this is a Paris Missile. This is two volumes of a Paris Missile that was disguised. What it says on the outside is to keep it from being destroyed. There are only four examples of this missile extant in the world because service books were destroyed in the French Revolution. It seems to me that when we look at the front end of the digital newspaper, we're looking at this. And when we look under the hood, we are finding something rather different indeed. So here, as a case in point, ladies and gentlemen, here is a voyage around the world from 1728, digitally retrieved and a nice digital page. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, produced by Tesseract, a standard, state-of-the-art program 
here, ladies and gentlemen, is the dirty OCR that's been first stage cleaned. Rather different this from this. And this is what you're really searching when you put something into the burning newspaper. This is the coded text. The angle brackets provide information. There's a location for every word. There's a kind of, a, 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 if you will, the plots of a graph. Every word has a number. And so when you search and you think you are coming up with Johnson's Dictionary, that is a skewomorph. It's, it's, it's artificial. It's a palliative to you because it makes you think that you are searching the page image. You are never searching the page image. You're searching the cleaned up, dirty OCR that's been coded. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand the digital artifact. And you can't have any way of reading the digital artifact bibliographically if you're not digitally literate. So when we look at the stream of words that comes at us in an 18th century newspaper, we think we're searching words in particular places on the page. But what we're really searching is streams of dirty OCR code. So in information studies, there's something called the recall problem. And it goes like this. People, when they're uh, queried, are very good about doing a search and sorting the results. Relevant, irrelevant. Relevant, irrelevant. Good sort. Bad sort, sheep, goat, sheep, sheep, goat. People are good at that. However, when even only 10% of the relevant results are produced, people have the illusion of completeness. Because you, as a searcher of a large corpus of, of language, have no way of knowing what percentage of relevant hits have actually been retrieved. And there's no way you can know. There's no way you can know. So maybe the curve of the newspaper prevents all this text from being coded properly. Or maybe the OCR finds this, as it does, completely unintelligible. Or perhaps these complex tables, or even because the paper was a little too wet and it's creased, that artifactuality, as it were, may mean that it is completely indecipherable to the scanning machine. To say nothing of special setting or margins that are inadvertently cut off, so if this is a newspaper and we have a sense of the human production of the page, what do we lose when this is a newspaper? And how does it change the way we see? 
And how does that change our notion of seriality? How does that change what it means to know? How are the particular copy-specific features of newspapers vanishing before our eyes because we use the digital copy instead of the physical copies that exist in a variety of repositories? Newspaper, ladies and gentlemen, is a kind of mosaic of interlocking pieces. But when we use the search engine, and I use them all the time, and so do you, and they are wonderful to have. But when we do, we should know the limits of what we're retrieving, because we turn the mosaic into a kind of ostracon, a kind of fragment. And so people in the 18th century themselves contemplated the notion of fragmentary reading and failing to understand the complex business of mise-en-page and juxtaposition. Um, so, so here, uh, we, we are assured on good authority that the, French, that, the, that the First Council of France has been swallowed by a whale. All it is is this kind of cross-reading. So it seems to me that we need to ask the question, what, what do, might it mean to transcend the logotomic protocol, this cutting the newspaper up by words, and to read the paper instead bibliographically. How might we use the affordances of the digital to their full possible uses and still think of the newspaper not as some container of information that's useful for extraction merely, but how are we to understand the true temporality and seriality that the newspaper exists as part of an information ecosystem and that the newspaper exists as part of a larger economy of print? <coughs> how is it that we will give our attention so that we understand that newspaper's temporality, its artifactuality, and the conditional nature of the object itself to say nothing of the conditional and highly fragmentary nature of the archive from which it comes. Thank you. <laughs>